War Talk Radio, Jerry Prokopovich. Every generation, including mine, believes that they invented sex. Since no one from the Civil War generation is left to contradict us, we could safely conclude that there was no sex in the Civil War era until the publication of Sex in the Civil War, The Stories the Soldiers Wouldn't Tell by Dr. Thomas P. Lowry. Join us today to hear some of those stories that the soldiers wouldn't tell on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words. Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, speaking to you from East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not representing the university's views on civil war or any other topics. Today we are going to discuss uh, a topic that for many decades has been essentially ignored by scholars of the civil war, not perhaps so much out of a willful desire to ignore it as a problem with sources. But our guest today has found a way to tackle that. Uh, we're talking today with Dr. Thomas P. Lowry. Tom, are you there? I am here. How are you doing today? Well, fine, Jerry. Thank you very much for appearing to be on the show. You and I 
uh, met at the conference at Gettysburg, I believe, uh, in November. Yes, we did. And it was, it was good to see you there. I knew of your work, and it's nice to meet you. And I appreciate you coming, uh, giving us a call today. Uh, how did you get interested in the Civil War? Well, uh, trying to cut a long story short, um, I wrote a brief family history oh, 30 years ago, and I found an obituary that said that my great-grandfather had three brothers in the Civil War, but they were all killed. And it turned out that it was very difficult to research this without any names. But a year or two later, I managed to track them all down, and then I wanted to read about the common soldier. So I read the two great books by Bell Wiley, uh, the late Bell Wiley, uh, The Life of Johnny Yank and the Life of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank. And in one of those books, he said that a sexual history of the war could never be written because all the basic documents had been destroyed, and the ones that remained were car- closely guarded by families. Uh, he described going to see... Uh, he was a great schmoozer. He liked to visit people and hang out and have a drink and have a cigar. And he recalled many times he would visit a family, and after dinner and a couple of drinks, they would say, Well, Bell, why don't you and I go back in the library and I'll show you this great letter from my grandfather. And he would have all kinds of naughtiness in it. And he said, but of course, Bell, you know, you can't use this. You can't quote this. It's just family. Mm-hmm. Well, I began collecting material. And after about a couple of years, I had a cardboard box weighing 40 pounds of material about sex in the Civil War. So I thought I was a pretty hotshot writer, so I wrote a book. And it was turned down by 35 publishers. <laughs> well, that's enough to give even a doctor humility. So I began to look around, and uh, finally the 36th uh, publisher, uh, Stackpole in, in Pennsylvania, uh, the nice editor there, Jack Davis, who known in print as William C. Davis, wrote me a letter and said, I think your book has potential. If you do the following 18 things, we will publish your book. And by then I was willing to learn, and I did exactly what he said. Well, you, you could hardly have a better uh, editor or teacher than, than Jack Davis. Oh, he, he is a miracle. I think he's got out 40 books, and from the time he collects all his material to the time it's ready to go to the publisher, it's usually about four weeks. He has a, incredible ability to synthesize. Astonishing how he can do that. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned you are a doctor. Uh, this is your day job, then? Uh, well, I'm happily retired. Ah. Um, I've been an M.D. since 1957. And I got out about eight years ago when it was still fun being a doctor these days with managed care and HMOs and, uh, you know, Medicare drug benefits. Um, it's probably not as much fun being a doctor. But I loved it. I did psychiatry and emergency medicine, made a lot of friends. I think I did some good, and I'm doing something else. Well, you know, I, I uh, twisted my ankle coaching my daughter's soccer team two nights ago, and I, I'll tell you all about the symptoms, and maybe you can diagnose it uh, over the phone for me. Well, sure, sure. That, that, uh, there, that, there's, uh, it, I still have my malpractice coverage. <laughs> it, it's funny. Um, I want to tell this, this anecdote without aiming it at you because you've done your research and you've written some very interesting things and you've, you've delved into the archives like few people have. Uh, but there's a story at the cocktail party of the uh, doctor who says, oh, you know, when I retire, I think I'll teach some history. And the history professor replies, it's interesting, when I retire, I think I'm going to take up surgery. Uh, <laughs> those of us who do history for a living like to believe it's not something you can just pick up in your spare time and be as good at it as a trained professional. But the fact is there are many wonderful things being written by people who are not full-time professional historians. 
Uh, Some of the most interesting subjects are tackled by people who aren't pressured by the tenure system or the publish or perish syndrome. Uh, They're free to look at whatever they want, and I think your book falls in that category. Well, I think you're right, and uh, I also didn't have to go through the ritual humiliation of working on a Ph.D. Exactly. And That's a good characterization. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just the anecdotes I've heard from my many friends with Ph.D.s is that um, some doctoral uh, committees uh, seem to see it as an exercise in sadism rather than a way of helping the student. And uh, the nice thing about getting an M.D. is you don't have to write a dissertation. And, well, of course, my true. Ph.D. friend said, well, you're not a real doctor. You didn't do a dissertation. <laughs> well, in contrast, my, my brother uh, is a real doctor who, who fixes bodies, and, and he's the one who points out to me that, that the Ph.D., I'm not the real doctor. Uh, but I will say, that just in the interest of, of fairness also, that uh, in some ways it's like Congress or the public schools. Everyone complains about them, but, but my guy's pretty good. Uh, I complain about the academic world, but I'll say my academic advisors uh, that I work with were wonderful people and not sadists at all. Well, but I do good. hear the horror stories. Uh, anyway, let me, let's me let move on and talk about your work further. The, uh, this is just a very interesting book, as anybody reading the title would imagine. And certainly the biggest obstacle to writing about sex in the Civil War is one you already referred to, uh, source material. Now, you collected it, you said, till you had a 40-pound box. Where did you find things? Well, <laughs> like the old story, a little here, a little there. Um, first, I, I read everything that seemed related to it, and I tracked down everybody's footnotes and the original sources and got Xeroxes of manuscripts that they had quoted. Uh, but the thing that really made a difference, um, after Jack Davis um, got me to agree to his 18 changes, he said, now, there's some people you need to talk to. There's this guy in Fredericksburg named Bob Crick. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I, you can see if you know the literature, and I know you do. I was being put in touch with the inner circle, uh, which has been a great blessing. And so my wife and I uh, traveled from California out to Virginia uh, and met with Bob Crick. And the first thing he told us was, well, I couldn't write anything about the California missions living in Virginia. And so you got to come to Virginia if you're going to write about the Civil War. He said, I collect files on everything. Here's my file on sex in the Civil War. Here's my federal Xerox card. I'm going to a mandatory meeting. I'll come back in an hour. Uh-huh. So, so we Xeroxed his file and thanked him profusely, and he said, well, now I'm busy, so but you've got what I have. Now you need to go up to the archives and meet a guy named Mike Music. Yes. And, of course, Mike Music, who, you know, we've had several disasters in our country's history, and one of them is Mike Music retiring. Uh, and for those who don't know, he was an archivist for 30 years at the National Archives that knows everything and where it's filed. And so we went up to see him, and Mike is very quiet, and he said, Well, well, Tom, well, Beverly, well, I might have a few things, and say, so you just wait here in the reading room. And after a while, a metal cart appeared with a bunch of cardboard boxes, and these were collections of Civil War court-martials. And we read through them and read through them and read through them. And what I didn't know was that Mike had salted the mind. He knew but the mind. He knew that in each of these boxes there was a great story. And so we'd read about so and so that was drunk and so and so that was absent without leave and so and so that deserted but was caught and so and so lost his rifle. And then we'd come to some absolutely outrageous uh, story of sexual behavior. And with those, uh, there was enough really uh, to make a book with some substance. I was going to say with some meat to it. Um, and uh, the, the rest is history, and it's now, I think, in its ninth printing, and it's sold 30,000 copies. And 
thirty thousand is pretty good for a little Civil War book. No, it's extremely good, and that uh, there's the old story about uh, the ideal book title being uh, Lincoln's Doctor's Dog, uh, because everyone wants to read about Lincoln and doctors and dogs, uh, and that dog that book has not been written. But I think uh, I think sex combining sex and the Civil War, you certainly uh, hit on a, a combination of topics that well, the amazing thing is that no one did it before. It, well, it is striking. Every time someone thinks the uh, with the field is played out, that, that there's no more new material to be found or new books to be written, uh, something obvious like this shows up. But, again, the reason, of course, why this hasn't been done before, it, it is the problem of sources. You you found things in the National Archives. You found thing, uh, things that, that Bob Crick had collected. There's also, even when you find the sources, though, the sources themselves were not preserved in many cases, I would imagine, by the families uh, you know, who, who don't want this to be out in the, in, in the public eye. Yes, I, I think there are several stages in, in destroying the records. Um, as is mentioned in the book, uh, there was a huge pornography industry in New York City. It's not just Internet pornography, but there was a vast publishing uh, group that sent out catalogs uh, to all the soldiers, or at least thousands of the soldiers. And I believe when the soldiers being mustered out on the way home on the train, they simply threw all this pornographic material out the window. Uh, the stuff that did survive after the soldiers were dead, um, usually their spinster daughters decided to edit their papers or write a book or some kind of thing, and the stuff they found that they didn't like, they would throw in the fireplace. So over the generations, uh, the families uh, and, and the soldiers before them uh, destroyed the vast majority of this material. So it, get, it comes down to us in a, a, a censored, a bodlerized fashion. Yeah, I, I would imagine far less than 1% of anything like this uh, has survived the century and a half. Now that brings up a real problem. As entertaining as, as your book is, it's hard to say. How can we say statistically how, how valid your sample is? Uh, well, uh, the answer is uh, you can't, but I have a, a second answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the years since the book was done, uh, my wife and I have finished reading all the Union general court-martials, all the Union navy court-martials, and about 5,000 of the Confederate court-martials. Uh, the Confederates were either foolish or intelligence because when they evacuated Richmond, they burned up all their court-martial records. And so almost nothing has survived. The, the general orders of the Army of Northern Virginia, which are these little tiny printed summaries, a set of those were saved, and there's some fragments in other archives that we visited. So we don't really know what the Confederates were up to. Uh, but we do know what the Union was up to in terms of ones that generated court-martials. And so we have another book percolating right now, uh, tentative title being Sex Crimes in the Civil War, which has three or four hundred uh, cases of soldiers who were in trouble in houses of prostitution, uh, uh, 300 soldiers who were court-martialed for rape, um, about 500 court- soldiers who were court-martialed for using um, uh, sexual curse words, uh, a dozen or two soldiers who were court-martialed for sexual relationships with animals, and about 50 uh, soldiers and sailors who were court-martialed for homosexual uh, encounters. So uh, as much as one can you know, derive uh, from the 90,000 court-martials, uh, I think we have more of a database now. So, and you could, I suppose, extrapolate using 
modern statistics comparing the number of crimes that are committed uh, to those that are actually reported and and assume that there must yeah. be a greater incidence than just what got into the court-martial system. Yes, and, and I don't know how on earth you know you would estimate uh, the difference between the two figures, but obviously um, there's more crime than gets uh, into the courts. Now, another problem that one has in looking at historical records in, in any kind of field is translating the language. Now, this is not a foreign language. Most of the material, I'm sure, is in English that you look at. But it's a different language in the sense of time, and especially in a field like sex where people are prone to use slang or euphemisms. Did you find words being used to have meanings you weren't expecting? Well, uh, I'm just, just popping into the top of my head. Uh, one of the Alexandria uh, rape trials, Alexandria, Virginia, um, a, a house uh, on Prince Street, which had been used as a whorehouse, uh, had changed hands, and a business couple from up north uh, had moved in, and apparently the word hadn't gotten out about the change of ownership. And so a drunk soldier showed up, and Mrs. So-and-so was in the kitchen uh, preparing lunch, and he came in and dropped his pants, and there was a lot of testimony as to whether or not it was indeed a sexual assault, and one of the witnesses said, yes, his dick was sticking right up. Now, well, I don't think that requires a lot of translation. <laughs> I, I suppose that that's fairly fairly direct, and as I say, there's no translation issue there. Um, that doesn't conform to the stereotype that we might have of the Victorian delicacy. Um, uh, I, I must have been reading Civil War material for years before I figured out when they discussed the uh, when somebody was accused of committing an outrage, uh, it was a, a euphemism for a sexual assault. Yes, uh, not not simply doing something outrageous, uh, but but you've quoted an example here where there's no euphemism at all. There's no problem understanding. Yes, that. And I could quote you two or three hundred of them. <laughs> although I, I don't know if children are allowed to listen to the radio anymore. Well, it, this actually goes on the internet and yeah. uh, rather than the radio, so uh, children know better than their parents how to work that. Uh, oh, they sure do. They sure and do. So they're they're probably listening and hacking and and changing the content even as we speak. <laughs> so uh, let me throw out another example, one that I came across when I was uh, researching the Army of the Ohio. I read a, a letter in which someone referred to a fellow officer, said he had been dismissed from the service, and the reason uh, the person writing home said was for an unfortunate appetite. And there was no other evidence I could get, and I wasn't really pursuing that. But at the time, I thought, I wonder what that means. Did he drink too much? Was he homosexual? Did he have an appetite for drugs? Uh, and, and it just strikes me, there must be a lot of that kind of very oblique reference where they don't want to say quite what's going on. Well, that's probably true. Well, that's sometimes true in the charges and specifications, but then when you get to the actual uh, testimony, he said, she said, he said, she said, um, uh, that very often gets cleared up. And if, if your man was court-martialed, you know, we may have him. Um, if he was directly dismissed rather than being court-martialed, uh, there may be something in his regular personnel file or his V file. Uh, and then sometimes you just can't find out. Yeah, so, so you're saying when the witnesses gave testimony, though, as in the one you quoted, they, they spoke directly. They didn't 
they would say exactly what they saw or quote the exact uh, sexual curse words if that were the, the gist of the offense. Oh, yeah. And some of them are quite imaginative. You know, Mark Twain gives wonderful descriptions of cursing, but not the cursing itself. Uh, he describes, you know, uh, great thunderclaps of blue profanity rolling out over the river, but that doesn't tell you what they said. Mm-hmm. But we had some marvelous guy. One guy told us, Colonel, you can kiss my royal star-spangled ass. <laughs> and and um, a, a number even better than that. I'm, I'm, wait, I'm making a note of that one. Okay. Um, that, that, I guess that puts me in mind of one of the, the odd aspects of the legal system is that words that are themselves a, a crime to use are perfectly okay if they're uttered in court in the course of giving testimony. Uh, Lenny Bruce used to do a routine about this when he uh-huh. was being uh, prosecuted for obscenity, and he uh, he then did a routine about his own trial in which the judge would say, you mean Mr. Bruce said blah, blah, blah? Yes, Your Honor, he said blah, blah, blah. And they would continue saying blah, 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 whatever the obscenity was, as often as they could in the course of the trial. And he found it ironic. That's what he was being punished for, but they seemed to be delighting in using it back and forth. One might reference the Star, uh, Ken Starr's uh, publication as well. Uh, you can condemn someone for bad things, but, boy, it's fun to write about it in great detail. Uh, yes, I suspect Starr had a bit of a uh, sick voyeuristic thing to him, but that's just my opinion. Well, uh, that, that would get us on a sidetrack. Yes, uh, which we got plenty to do without the sidetrack. That's true, and, and, and the music swelling in the background suggests we, we don't have unlimited time, but I want to ask more. I want to ask you about the uh, the, the floating whorehouse of the Tennessee, and or the Cumberland, rather, and, and other interesting topics when we come back, and we'll also talk more about these court-martial records. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking today with Dr. Thomas Lowry on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 